Today we're reading from Genesis 24, 1 to 4, and also Acts 11, 1 to 10, and verse 18. Abraham was now very old, and the Lord had blessed him in every way. He said to the senior servant in his household, to the one in charge of all he had, put your hand under my thigh. I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I am living, but will go to the country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son Isaac. Acts 11. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them? Starting from the beginning, Peter told him the whole story. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance, I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheet being let down from the heaven by its four corners, and it came down to where I was. I looked into it, and I saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, and birds. Then I heard a voice telling me, Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. I replied, Oh, surely not, Lord. Nothing impure or unclean has ever touched my mouth. The voice spoke from heaven a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and then it was all pulled up to heaven again. When, this, when they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Over the course of the past year, our staff and our steering committee have been talking about the kinds of things that we would like to focus on uh, during the next season of our life together as a church. Four opportunities that we believe will lead us into a season of healthy growth and maturity. We started off by talking about a place to call home. We explored a culture of invitation, and last week Kristen introduced us to the concept of a spiritual vitality, all of these while holding on tightly to our key values. We haven't set out a five-year plan. There aren't detailed steps that we're following. That will come in time, but we want to start this year off by building some five-year momentum. And so now for our final week, we're going to take a look at the idea of having a diverse community. Now, our two readings this morning serve as a reminder of the diverse ways that the theme of diversity appears in the Bible. Did you catch that? The Bible has a diverse way of talking about diversity. And so these two passages, they actually have very different messages, and we're going to explore them both. In the first short reading from Genesis 24, Abraham invites his servant to do something that I'm pretty sure would be frowned upon in a modern-day workplace environment. He calls his employee up to him and says, I want you to put your hand under my thigh. Really? Has anyone ever asked you to put your hand under their thigh when making a promise? Now, the truth is, is it's actually worse than that because the phrase under the thigh is likely a euphemism for on the loins. So it's like the hand and then you just slide it a little bit and it gets even more awkward. And the point was that this is supposed to be like a really solemn oath. Like you're standing there beside someone, you're like, promise me. Like, please, I'll promise you anything right now. 
I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife for my son for the daughters of the Canaanites, but will go to my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son Isaac. Now, to our modern ears, this sounds just about as strange as an under-the-thigh oath. Why would you want someone to find a spouse for your child from your extended family? It seems like you would want the opposite. And in fact, I remember kind of a, a bit of our extended family lore. Uh, my aunt and uncle raised my cousin's four daughters in Nova Scotia. Uh, now, Nova Scotia, for those of you who don't know much about Canada, it's kind of on the far east there. And uh, it's a small province. They lived on uh, the south end of Nova Scotia there. But they didn't just live on like the south end of Nova Scotia. They lived on the south end of the south end of Nova Scotia in this little tiny place called Lower Wedgeport. If you ever are in Nova Scotia and you ask someone about that, town, nobody knows that it exists. It's this tiny little place. And so legend has it that they decided that it wouldn't be a good idea to raise their four daughters in such a small community because chances are they would end up marrying someone who they were related to because there just weren't that many people around. So they moved them to Ontario. And uh, eventually the, my cousins grew up and they started get, having romantic relationships and one of them fell in love. And after they had fallen in love and their lives were already tracking together, they, they had the conversation about where's your family from? Guess where his family was from? That's right. That same little southern tip of the southern tip of the tiny little province of Nova Scotia. So they're actually like fourth or fifth cousins, but they're married and they have children and they're a wonderful family. But Abraham actually wanted his son to marry someone from his own extended family. This attitude, the importance of remaining separate from other nations, put down deep roots, and it became an important part of identity for the Hebrew people. We can fast forward a few centuries, a few generations, and we hear Moses instructing the people in Deuteronomy 7, make no treaty with them, show them no mercy, do not intermarry with them, talking about the, the other nations that surrounded them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God." The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. Now, instructions like these were meant to prepare people for life in the midst of the moral chaos of the surrounding culture that was seething with promiscuous sex and child sacrifice. And so there was the idea of just stay separate, keep to your own. But when you couple a genuine concern about negative influences, of being enticed away from faithfulness, with a collective belief that you have been chosen by God out of all the people on the face of the earth. Well, you can imagine where that might lead. The Russian author Nikolai Gogol once wrote that people are light-mindedly unperceptive, and a man in a different kaftan seems to them a different man. It's our intellectual immaturity that allows us to fall for the lazy idea that what a person looks like on the outside makes them a different person on the inside, as if by changing a coat, they could become a different person, as if by being from a different nation, they can become someone less than us. So at risk of oversimplifying, for a good long stretch in the Bible, this was the dominant narrative. Hebrew people were special, and everyone else should be kept at arm's length. So we get to our second reading from Acts chapter 11. Verses 2 to 3, when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Well, here we go again with some more under-the-thigh talk. 
If circumcision is a topic that interests you, I actually spent an entire morning talking about it back in November, so you can search the podcast episode Foreskin or No Foreskin, and you can hear about it for like an entire half hour. But those, the important piece for us to understand is that those with Jewish heritage who were following Jesus, they didn't think about themselves as no longer being Jewish. That was impossible. That wasn't an option. But they were Jewish with Jesus. So the fact that Peter had broken Jewish law by eating with outsiders was not okay. And this was something more significant than someone crossing social lines in a high school cafeteria. This was more significant than that. And so Peter tells the story. One day he found himself in a trance. This is kind of interesting. You don't hear a whole lot about trances in the Bible, but Peter's in one. And I guarantee you, if you look at that screen long enough, you will be in one. It's really trippy. Um, So Peter's in a trance, and he has a vision. If you've been around Elevation for a while at all, you know how much that I hate when people share their dreams with me. It's an obnoxious thing. In fact, we all hate it. We all love sharing our creative dreams with people, but we all hate listening to the dreams of other people. But this one's in the Bible, so we're going to go with it. Acts chapter 11, verse 5 to 7. I saw something like a large sheet being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to where I was. I looked into it and saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, and birds of the air. Then I heard a voice telling me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Kind of a violent dream. But Peter has this dream, and he's like, no way, this is crazy. He would have none of it. So he actually responds. He didn't spend his entire life avoiding unclean food. And here, this voice is telling him to eat all of this unclean food. But the voice spoke from heaven a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. So what's he got to do with this? Well, he finishes this vision story. Then he tells the people that he was interacting with there another story. Now, this was left out of the reading for the sake of time, but I'm going to tell the story for you. Basically, it was about a man named Cornelius who was a Gentile, a non-Jew. So this is interesting because here is someone who is not part of this special people, this chosen nation, and he has an encounter with God. He has a vision of his own. And in this vision, this angel appears to him and says, send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. And so Cornelius does this. He sends a couple of his servants. He said, I don't know. I, was, I had this vision. A voice told me that you're supposed to go to Joppa and bring back someone named Peter. And so these guys head off to this other city, and Peter is sitting there, kind of still in a daze. He's still trying to figure out what is this vision all about? What is God trying to tell me? And these men say, hey, our master had a vision, and you're supposed to come with us. So Peter's like, okay, might as well follow this one. So he follows them back, and Cornelius shares about his vision, and Peter puts two and two together. Acts 10, 34 to 35. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. Peter then tells the Jews about this experience, including the fact that these Gentiles had received the Holy Spirit. They'd spoken in tongues, which meant languages that they had not learned, but God had given them the ability to speak in these other languages, which was proof enough to Peter that God had accepted them. The original story appears in Acts chapter 10, one chapter earlier, and so these episodes were really just a few days apart from the time that Peter had this vision to then he visits Cornelius' house and then he's with all of these Jews answering their questions about why he's eating with this crowd of people. Just a few days apart. And I was wondering why Luke, the author of Acts, decided to repeat the whole story. If you read chapter 10 and 11, it's almost exactly the same chapter, just repeated as Peter goes and tells the story. 
I thought that one possibility might have been that Luke wanted to emphasize that Peter didn't change the details. The vision that appeared to him, he went and he told other people, this is, what, this is what God said. This is the vision that I had. I just want to repeat it word from word. Or maybe I wondered if Luke wanted to build some anticipation, keeping in mind that this passage, this letter would have been read aloud, and so you hear what's going on, and then he tells the exact same story the second time, and I can imagine the hearers saying, yeah, we know, we know, get to the end. How did they respond? How did these people respond to this wild and crazy vision that Peter had? Well, when they heard this, They had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. They were skeptical. They were unsure about this Peter guy. And by the end of it, they're praising God. And they're saying, all right, the Gentiles are in. Now, I don't know everyone here this morning. I know most of you. um, But I don't know everyone here this morning. But just about every one of us here is a Gentile, right? Most of us do not have Jewish heritage. And it's important to acknowledge that the only reason most of us are in church today is because people like Peter have been willing to set aside prejudices, assumptions, and personal preferences to make way for others to join God's great global family of faith. I said at the onset that the theme of diversity appears in the Bible in diverse ways, but there's a very clear trajectory that moves from Abraham to Peter and beyond. In the beginning of the biblical story, we have this idea of exclusion, keep different people far away. And here we have this explosion of, no, everyone is in here. And this is the trajectory that we find ourselves on. Miroslav Volf writes that a faith that makes a difference is a faith that helps us discern and motivates us to do what is right and excellent. A faith that makes a difference nudges us to work out of love, not just for ourselves, but for our near and distant neighbors as well. And so our question is, what does Peter's story have to do with our own community here in Waterloo in 2020? Well, I read an article this past week that pointed out two words that tend to get in the way of us continuing the trajectory from Peter and beyond. The first is uniformity. Uniformity said, if it's not done in a way that I would do it, it's not okay. And as soon as I read that, I was like, well, I could think about 100 examples from my household. You know, how the towels are folded, how cutlery is put away, how toilet paper is put on the roll, how the toothpaste tube is squeezed, how food is eaten. My daughter doesn't let her food touch. So I make a stir fry. I have to put the rice on one half of the plate and the stir fry on the other half of the plate. There's just something wrong with that. But if I were to say, I don't care about how you want your food, I'm putting the stir fry on the rice, like what kind of a family would that be? That would be weird. If everything had to be the same, if everyone had to be my way, right? But that's what uniformity says. Uniformity says it's either my way or nothing. And so we don't want that, certainly. If it's unappealing goal for a household, then it's equally unappealing for a church. The author of this article, Ruthie Johnson, wrote that God's identity is expressed in diversity. A church's natural tendency is towards homogeneity. Homogeneity, a big word, says it's easier to relate to people who are like me. It's a leaning into sameness instead of difference. Now, we all experience this in different ways. We all know that there's an element of truth to this, that we tend to maybe prefer people of the same stage of life as us, maybe people with the similar interests to us. People who speak the same language or, or have the same cultural background, maybe we find it easier to connect with people. A homogenous community may not defa- demand uniformity, but it still prefers sameness and leans into efforts that will keep things as they are. But we don't have to 
be on the same page as people in order to be in relationship with them. Alain de Botton writes that compatibility is an achievement of love. It shouldn't be its precondition. Compatibility is an achievement of love. It shouldn't be its precondition. You shouldn't have to be a perfect match with someone in order to love them and to be in relationship with them because the love and the relationship build your compatibility. It's a beautiful, beautiful observation. And so a few weeks ago when we began this series, I kind of shared this vision and, and I tried to, to imagine as though I was sharing a reflection in the year 2025, looking back at the last five years of our church. And one of the things that I said is that when I look out at the congregation on a Sunday morning, I see a community that is so much more diverse than we were five years ago. The million dollar question, of course, is how did we get there? How did we get from here to there? Now, we have seen change in our church. There's no doubt about it. In our early years, I can remember how difficult it was to spread ourselves um, into new demographics as a church. I can remember families coming to our church for a few weeks or maybe a few months and then leaving and telling me that the reason they were leaving is there weren't any kids in our church. <laughs> like, literally. I remember one, um, one mom saying to me, you know, I have an eight-year-old daughter and there are no eight-year-old girls in this church, you know. And, and I remember being so frustrated with it, thinking like, well, there'll never be an eight-year-old girl if eight-year-old girls are always leaving. Like, someone has to stay here. Someone's got to stay. So that was like, whatever, ten years ago. Now we have this, this database and I got a screenshot from it. So there's this dashboard and it gives a little demographic snapshot of our church. So this is like children under the age of 12. There's like 150 in our church. So if someone comes in and says, I don't think there's eight, no, I'm sure there are a few eight-year-old girls. I think we got that one covered. And so I was thinking, like, so we went from being kind of homogenous in that area to being more diverse, and I was thinking, like, how did that happen? Well, the short answer is sex. But this won't help very much. This won't help very much when it comes to the other areas of diversity, right? If we want to become like a more diverse community in some of these other areas, if, when it comes to race or culture or socioeconomic status or ability or sexual orientation or stage of life, then we're going to need to put some effort into this. Now, I want to say this. We do have racial diversity, diversity in our church, but we're not a very racially diverse community. We do have socioeconomic diversity in our church, but we're not a very diverse socioeconomically, if you know what I mean. And I think that now is as good a time as any to say that I am bound to say the wrong thing this morning, or uh, if not, then I'm bound to say the right thing the wrong way. It's going to happen. But what I want to try to do this morning is to demonstrate that if we're too afraid to enter into the conversation, then we'll ne never get anywhere. If we're, not, if we're too afraid to make mistakes and stumble over our words or use the wrong label or analogy, then we'll never get to where we want to go. We need to create spaces where people like me can fumble their way along if we have any hope of using our collective wisdom and creativity to generate real change. We were talking about this in the office, and uh, Susan Fish reminded me of uh, something that happened last year in our community when uh, the VBS curriculum came out for last summer, so our summer day camp program for our kids. And there were some, some problems with it. It was a, a, a theme kind of based in Africa, and there were some really cultural, culturally insensitive 
elements to this uh, program, and there was a big uproar about it, um, and then our team got together, the team of leaders got together, and they said, well, what can we do with this? Like, should we just scrap it and find something else, or, or should we respond creatively? And so they got together, and they began to talk about, you know, what are the issues that, that do, do we have with this? What are the problems? Can we, can we rewrite some of this? Can we redeem some of this element? And I think the thing that's, that is important to understand is if we use that curriculum as an example, I mean, these are good people who love Jesus, who are doing their best to do something great for kids, and they made some mistakes, and that's okay. And we've done the same thing, and we will continue to do the same thing. So me standing up here is just is not really the, the best way to have a conversation. This is just a conversation starter. Uh, we'll continue it in the weeks and the months and the years to come, but I want to be able to kind of demonstrate a little bit of where we want to go. So we might start by asking the question, who's not in the room? Who's not here this morning? The makeup of our community, it's not exactly representative of the city we live in. Not that it has to be exactly representative, but I think if we take a look at the broader KW community, uh, there are people that are missing this morning. I remember a few years ago, a family in our community uh, shared uh, a, a concern that they had, they, they were pregnant and they had received some news that uh, it looked, based on the ultrasounds, like their child might have some physical, uh, significant physical limitations when they were born. And I remember thinking at the time, like, as a church family, like, we'll do anything. We'll do anything to accommodate that little one, right? Like, like we'll, we'll just build an elevator to get them upstairs for their classes. We'll just do whatever it takes. But then the thought came to me, like, immediately afterward, well, why aren't we doing that now? Why aren't we doing that for the person who's not part of our church? Because that person comes in here and goes, well, my kid can't participate. Or they don't even bother showing up because they know that we haven't thought about it. I think about conversations that I've had with people from Christian Horizons about the struggle that churches have in welcoming people with special needs. I think about our team who works with show and the challenges of trying to find, build bridges with, between our communities. Ruthie Johnson again, she writes, what I'm finding is that although many churches have a strong desire, and she's writing specifically about multi-ethnicity, but we could enter any of these elements of diversity in. Although the church has a strong desire, few of us are able to conceptualize what that actually means. While we may have some theology surrounding the need for diversity, it's harder to implement than we expect. So what do we do? Well, we put ourselves in situations to learn, that's for one. Three years ago, I attended a conference in Virginia, and it was very interesting being in the southern U.S., and a significant theme of the culture was around racial inequality. And certainly our world here in southwestern Ontario is a little different than Virginia, um, but it was very interesting, and it began me down a path of, of real learning and education. The other thing that stood out to me at that conference was their, their commitment uh, to having roles for women in leadership in the church. And they talked about how in a lot of church communities, a lot of church contexts, that doesn't happen. And I remember in a sense, I kind of started patting myself on the back thinking, I think we do a good job here. I really do. We've always had men and women leading equally in this church. But I felt, I remember being in the balcony of that big old Baptist church and, and feeling like God was saying, invite women to preach in our church. So last week, Kristen Taylor was here, a response to that saying, yes, there are, there are always more opportunities for us if we're asking the right questions. Because we're missing out on something significant by not having diverse voices at the table. Now, I don't know, maybe you're like me, because I think an attitude that I would have 
held for a long time is this idea that I don't want to see differences. I don't want to focus on differences. I just want to focus on what we have the same. And a few weeks ago, our family was watching this movie called uh, The Hate You Give. It's based on the book by Angie Thomas. And there's this scene in it where the main character, Star, she's, her and her white boyfriend are having this conversation. He says something to her. He's like, I don't even see your color. And he's meaning it like, I just see the things that we have in common. And she responds back to him, if you don't see my blackness, you don't see me. And I think this is one of the things that I've been trying to learn, is that as laudable as it seems to just say, hey, we're all the same, we actually are different. And that's a good thing. Because the ways that we are different from one another, and that we extends to people who are not here yet this morning, actually bring significant gifts and benefit to our community. In my little kind of reflection piece that I shared, I said, it's changed the food we eat when we get together, the music we play on Sunday mornings, and the kinds of relationships that are being built. But as I've been reflecting on it more, I think, no, it does more than that, actually. In our diversity, we'll be able to read the Bible more accurately, to hear the Spirit's voice more clearly, and ultimately to reflect the image of God with more integrity. I think those are the real benefits of broadening our diversity. And yet at the same time, as numerous as our differences are, the things we share in common are far greater. Shakespeare has the character of Shylock say in The Merchant of Venice in a famous speech, I am a Jew, hath not a Jew eyes? Hath not a Jew hands, organs, dimensions, senses, affections, passions, fed with the same food, hurt with the same weapons, subject to the same diseases, healed by the same means, warmed and cooled by the same winter and summer as a Christian is? If you prick us, do we not bleed? If you tickle us, do we not laugh? If you poison us, do we not die? And so our invitation is to acknowledge at one and the same time those things that make us different and those things that we have in common as human beings created in God's image. I love this line from Scott McKnight. He wrote a great book called The Fellowship of Difference. He says, The church is God's world-changing social experiment of bringing unlikes and difference to the table to share life with one another as a new kind of family. It's a beautiful vision. But we have to make choices as a community. I remember having a conversation with a denominational leader a couple of years ago, and it was on the other side of a conference that I attended, and we were just kind of talking about it, and he was asking for my reflections, my, my impressions of the conference. And one of the things I said to him, I said, you know, I, see, I, said, I see two very different narratives being told. I said, on one hand, I hear this narrative of openness. I hear this narrative of, of saying yes to young generations. I hear this narrative of, of being willing to engage in difficult conversations and, and trying to understand that there are going to be new creative ways that pastors and churches will engage in ministry. So that's one narrative I hear. But I said, on the other hand, I, I hear a narrative of closing because there's a motion on the floor to, to restrict the limitations on who is able to be a pastor, and, and there are other questions about limiting, you know, defining our beliefs more narrowly. I said, there's two competing narratives. And I said, one of them has to win. Either the doors are open wider, or the doors are closed tighter. And I said, and that's the real challenge, I think, moving forward. And it's our challenge, too. There are competing narratives. There's a part of us that just wants things to stay the same, and there's a part of us that wants things to be different. And so which one's going to win? 
I want us to be able to celebrate the good we're already doing as a church, which I think is a lot, while also opening ourselves up wider and wider along the way. Like the song we sang, my heart is an open space. Our hearts are open spaces for you to come and have your way. In that five-year vision that I shared, I said while we started off worshiping and doing life with people who didn't always look, sound, or think like us, now the us has been totally redefined, and we're so much better for it. And that's my heart, and that's my hope for our community. I'm going to close this part uh, from Revelation chapter 7. Revelation is this wild book at the end of our Bibles that casts this vision for things to come. And there's a sign in, in this, this line in Revelation 7, verses 9 to 10, where John looks around. He's having a vision of his own, much like Peter had his vision, much like Cornelius had his vision. Um, John's having a vision. And he says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every t- nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they crowd out cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This morning we're going to open the table for communion. I don't think there's anything more symbolic of God's open arms than this table where we take a piece of bread and a cup of juice and we remember Christ's sacrifice, not just for the people in this room, not just for people who are like us, but for all of humanity. And so I invite you to come. Take the elements with you back to your seats. We're going to sing a song, and then I'll come back up. We'll share them together, and we'll sing a song of hope and expectation to close our time together.